Okay, good evening all. Tonight, God willing, I'm going to speak on contentment, especially contentment through the grace of God, which is the only contentment that works anyhow. The word of the night is autarkia. That's the Greek word that is used for contentment. And if you break that down, this is auto, which means self, archaea, sufficient. So the contentment actually literally is self-sufficiency, which might make you flinch a little bit because when you think self-sufficiency, you start thinking things like, I can do it on my own, I'm self-made man, and so forth. But it turns out that, yes, indeed, you can do it, but you can do it because God enabled you to do that and enabled you to handle the difficulties of life. So the first passage tonight is 1 Timothy 3. This is verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, and so forth. Notice that what is brought about here, the various adjectives, invariably compare options. For example, when it says not a drunkard, the options in front of you are, yes, I'm a drunkard, no, I'm not a drunkard. Mm -hmm. Or violent and gentle, those options are, are laid out. Some people are just naturally fighters, not necessarily physically. You can be a, a verbal fighter and, and take quite a beating verbally also. It's a common literary technique to compare and contrast when you use two words like that. As even in this case, when we're just using one word, it implies the other word also exists. For example, self-controlled implies a lack of self-control as a contrast. Up has its down, left has its right, dry has its wet, and light has its dark. So what of contentment? What is the other side of that? What is missing, or what is the, the element of lack of contentment that we need in order to become content? And that starts with God, and it's mentioned throughout the Bible. People without contentment tend to be people without a faith or understanding in God, or at least a faith that is flawed or incomplete or frighteningly young in understanding. And let me slip in here that contentment is an ongoing learn process, not a light switch that suddenly goes on and off, but something that is, is worked into, and we'll see more of that later, God willing. The Bible speaks of contentment as a frame of mind in viewing one's lot as sufficient. In other words, I'm happy where I'm at, with what I've been given, with what I'm capable of doing. In my particular case, I was always a basketball freak, somewhat frustrated basketball freak because I never saw the, the rim in my life. I was always a few inches short. Mm. I will never see the day when I can dunk a basketball, but that's just the way it is. That's what I was given, legs that don't jump that high. We usually think of contentment merely in a, as a passive state of willingness where we put up with whatever state we happen to be in. 
But Christian contentment is not just a passive state of putting up with whatever you're dealt. Christian contentment comes not of a passive acceptance of condition, but because there is a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support other than the grace of God is given to us. And that's the self-sufficiency because God has granted whatever one needs to face life and conquer it. If we don't feel sufficient, we will look for more, especially somebody else's more. And why does that person have more than me? Why does that person have more money than I have? And why does that person have more fame? Why does he have a bigger house and a bigger car or a better job? Or to bring it even more current, why does he have better health insurance? I want some of that more, says the malcontent. How do I get that? How do I get some of that stuff? How do I get some of his stuff? That guy just makes too much money. He doesn't need to be making that much money as a corporate exec, and I'll appoint myself to decide how much he should have. Even though I know nothing about the corporation and what he goes through, for that matter, I don't even know what his pay scale is. There's a lot of corporate execs that get paid $1 plus bonus. And if you look at their pay and see that their bonus is X amount of money, there's a lot of people that are more happy to say, no bonus for you, that's just too much. You just take your base salary, which in many cases happens to be $1. That's a great way to get the corporate executive to really get out and get passionate at the job. If you're paid $1 plus bonus, you better get out there and earn your bonus. So the malcontent too often decides he doesn't need all that money, and I'll decide how much money he should have. And that guy, he's just too successful. He's one of those Wall Street banker guys. So what do we do? What does the malcontent do? Well, along comes the progressive politician who tells you, I'll get it for you. I'll help you. Just vote for me, and I'll take care of this. I'll get even for you, and I'll be your big dog on the porch, and I'll fight the fight for you and even things up. Or even more personal, the malcontent just might take it upon himself to commit theft, and I'll have some of that big stuff the other guy has, and I'll just take it from him. And that leads us to the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 expands on that and says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God tells us to keep our hands away from somebody else's stuff. Contentment makes that pretty easy to do, but since so few people actually do attain contentment, they need to be told this. And the Tenth Commandment shouts that out, and Exodus twenty seventeen expands on that. One of the most coveted items continuing in the world today, and it's always been this way, is money. The big money, the love of money, the root of all kinds of evil. And this manifests itself in so many different ways because I've seen guys work monster hours, and I will admit that I was one of these guys. I used to work two jobs, total amount of hours per week in the area of 80 to 90 hours a week. That's silly. It gets in the way of your life in a hurry. I have seen guys work long hours for year after year after year after year, and then they retire, and you give him a big hug, shake his hand, and a year later he's dead. 
And it makes me wonder, well, what was that all about? You poured all that effort 40 years into a company and you walked away with retirement thinking you had money and now it was time to relax. And yeah, you relaxed all right. You died. Two months ago, I had a friend of mine die. He didn't get to retire because Larry had a target of $500,000 he wanted in his 401k. And he was edging up to it because he, he was working monster hours and he was, he was fairly tight with money. So he wanted to hit that $500,000 figure. And Larry was getting close. And he didn't talk about it all the time, but if you, you, know, if you knew Larry, ultimately it, it would come out. And you knew he was close, and you'd say, well, how, how soon are you coming, Larry? And Larry says, I'm, I'm thinking maybe eight, nine months, something like that. I said, well, I hope you get there. Then Larry left work one Friday afternoon, died Saturday morning of a heart attack. And Monday morning, everybody got the word in plant that uh, Larry had passed away. After putting in all that effort, and to this day, uh, they haven't hired the two guys that are going to have to replace him. But he passed away, and I went to his funeral, and I was there with a friend of mine from the company we work for. I'm happy to say Larry was a churchgoer, and, and he was obviously well-liked. And as my friend and I were talking about this over snacks after the service, evidently his wife, who neither one of us had ever met, saw the two of us talking, and she thought right away, they worked with Larry, and she was on us like a shot. She says, now you two, you listen to me. You stop pouring your heart into that company and working silly hours because there's life to be led. She says, uh, Larry didn't quite understand that and, and, and it cost him dearly and I don't want that to cost you. So, And then she grabs each one of us by the pinky. She says, I want you to pinky swear. And she has each one of our pinkies and her pinky and it's tied in a, a three pinky knot like that. She says, I want you to swear you won't pour in silly hours like that at a company when there's life to be lived. Okay, we pinky sweared, and as the pinkies got undone, my friend finally got to put in a word and said, well, I retired about four months ago. So the widow looks to me and says, I'm gonna probably be gone in about nine months and I don't work overtime unless it's mandatory and I have to to keep my job, but I'm not working overtime anymore. To which the widow went, this pinky stuff works pretty good. <laughs> So she got what she wanted, and as, as news of uh, Larry's passing went around the plant and more details came in, we knew his goal was to hit 500000 and it turned out that his 401k was $485,000. And would he retire at that and go off with his wife and kids and grandkids? No, he, he wanted to push for that extra fifteen grand to make the, the magic half million. And that pushing and pushing ultimately cost him. And that's just a real shame. Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Adam was in paradise. But was he content or did he eat the fruit? A greedy man is rarely satisfied. It's just not his nature. In Matthew 13, verse 1, says, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, 
A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And verse 7 says, Other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus in verse 22 interprets verse 7. And Jesus says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world are so powerful that it makes the word unfruitful. A lack of contentment can be very damaging when you let the world get in the way of more important things. It's not just a choice like between chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream as to whether you want to be content or not. When you're drawn toward the, the word of God and the peace that the word brings you, go there, run after it. God will either change you or you never will understand and because you don't understand, you will be unfruitful and you'll never profit from that word. Again, God gets the credit for changing you. In my case, I was a type A personality for much of my earlier life, the son of a type A father, and we were just type A together. And I'm a whole lot more calm than I used to be. And I'm glad to say my dad's more calm than he used to be. I wish I could say that he was a believer but at least he's backed off on the whole type A thing a lot. Three heart attacks might have had something to do with it, but he's backed off quite a bit. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, we read, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. And the reason that command is there is because it's necessary. Because most people who are rich and most people who are committed to the the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches tend to become arrogant. John 15 verse 1 says, I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is the requirement there. You will not bear fruit unless you abide in Jesus. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's not just a wonderful promise. 
But that's a good recipe for contentment right there. When you know that you're a branch of the vine, you know that you're in the right place. And when you have, a, have Jesus love you like that, that whatever you wish, that will be done for you. That is a recipe for contentment. And the more time I spend in the Word, and the more time I spend in this building, and on the internet hearing sheep food, the more content I become. And that's because I'm hearing God, and I'm hearing His Word. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, but now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Notice Paul uses the word learned here when speaking about contentment. That again references what I said earlier, that contentment is not a light switch that is flipped on and off, but something that is learned. And in order to learn something, you either have to be taught or you have to experience experience it or both taught and experience it. And I can tell you from my past, experience can be a very expensive teacher. Let's go with the teaching and just be taught and listen. I know what it is to be brought low. So Paul knows what it is to be low. But did Paul use this as an excuse for sin? Did he turn to a life of crime because he was brought low? Did he say, I have to steal because times are tough? Because that's what we're told today on the news. That's what we're told why crime is so, so tough in the, the inner cities, because that's just the way times are, and, and crime goes high as a result of it. And tough times are an excuse for crime. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but I've heard it from a couple of different sources that the crime rate during the United, in the United States during the Great Depression of 1929 essentially didn't go up. And when you've got people desperately needing bread, that they're lined up down the street, around the building, and down that street to get bread, and times are that poor, we don't know that now. But when things were that desperate, people were not stealing from other people. Crime didn't go crazy. But let a story come out now on the news that is totally false. Let a story of a riot come out like that, and before you know it, pharmacies are burned to the ground. That kind of stuff didn't happen back in 1929. We live in different times today. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All through God. Alex talked a bit about this last night at the men's meeting how he has tried to talk about people that are just full of various anxieties and depression and trying to talk to them about the Almighty God and how God can bring a contentment and bring a peace. But if they won't talk about God, well, then we got problems. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to make somebody content who was not content. Try to make somebody peaceful that just didn't have it in him. But it doesn't work too well, does it? But it, it just doesn't work if you try to talk about peace and contentment without God. Anything other than that is you're just throwing words at a problem, and it does, just doesn't bear fruit from there. As the pharmaceutical industry understands, as Alec understands at his job, when you start talking to people like that, you can talk to them about God, and if God opens their eyes, so much the better. But if you start talking to them about God and nothing's sinking in and they want no part of it, you might as well be talking on a telephone without picking it off the receiver. For those of you that still have telephones with receivers on it. Uh, if you'll turn, please, to Genesis 13, let's, let's read a chunk of the, the Bible together because Genesis 13 is going to reference, at least what I want to focus on, about the grass being greener on the other side and being greener elsewhere because that's where we're going to see with Abram and Lot here. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. That's quite a description. Must look pretty good. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Now this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. So Lot has picked the nicer ground. He was given the choice. He took the prettiest. He took the most valuable of the land. And thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then the kicker. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. But it was a nice looking valley. Looked like the garden of the Lord. But the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. Sometimes you think the grass is greener on the other side, and sometimes you maybe need to rethink it. In this case, the desire for something better took over Lot. He was not able to be content. He wanted the bigger, better place, the more valued place, and that's what he went for. And by going for that, by going for what appeared to be the greener pasture, Lot ends up requiring rescuing. And in Genesis 19, his wife becomes a pillar of salt. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, that's a simple sentence. We can touch food and we can touch clothing, that's pretty simple to understand. And we can also feel content after a good meal. You just sit back and feel relaxed. And the general feeling of contentment lasts for a short while. But Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 goes much deeper. Hebrews 13 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money 
and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This is so much deeper than food and clothing. This is an almighty God, the creator, saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's quite a promise to hang on to. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is, get this description now, that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then the contrast, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is the key ingredient to the great gain The Old Testament has passages on forsaking. I'd like to read a few of those. This is Moses speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy. Moses says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall take possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses gives the same message personally to Joshua that he gave to all Israel about he will not leave you or forsake you. In Joshua 1, verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God repeats it over and over and over. So that leads forsaking. I think of Jesus on the cross and the quote from Matthew Chapter 27, verse 46. Whereas Jesus on the cross is saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God forsake Jesus? Can God forsake himself? Or is it that Jesus knows the pain of being forsaken? Jesus Christ is still God on the cross. And he is still 100% human, 100% God, all at the same time. That doesn't add up to 200%. It's still 100%. And this is not the human Jesus being separated from the godly Jesus on the cross, where the human Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? At at all times, Jesus is is 100% man, 100% God. So there is no separating of the human from the godly here. What we do see as he's going through the pain in his hour of greatest need comes a pain that Jesus has never experienced. 
and that is his father's abandonment. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And God is quiet. And God's wrath is coming down on him. And God is quiet. There's no voice coming from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. It is wrath being poured on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this is how bad our sin is. That Jesus had to go through this had to go through the pain of being forsaken. God did not forsake Jesus, but he did go through the pain. And yet, God will not forsake us. In our storms and valleys and in our griefs, when a loved one is struggling in their last days, sometimes our difficulty is if if we've got various medical issues, God will not forsake us. And how can sinners like us possibly have a contentment? Well, there's only one way, because the Almighty God will not forsake us. Philippians 6, excuse me, Philippians 4, verse 6, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's contentment. John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. The source of our peace is God. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 where the men's group was last night. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty, and that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. He is able. He can handle your anxiety. Romans 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's power. 
That's not being forsaken. And that's contentment. Adam was in paradise, yet he was not content. But the Apostle Paul, though abased and empty, had learned in every state to be content. And Christians have reason with their present lot to be content. Why? Because we saw in Hebrews 13.5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It looks straight at your contentment. And by looking at at your thoughts and attitudes, God looks and says, Do you trust me? Do you believe in my son? Do you believe what he can do for you? Do you believe what he has done for you? Because he can look in our hearts and see the contentment we have in Christ. All that we have is what God has given us. He has portioned it out as he sees fit. So I finish up with the secret of contentment. God is with us. His word is true and his word is unchanging. And when that is understood and believed and lived, then there will be a self-sufficiency, a contentment, because we can be content because God is sufficient for us and he's all we need. The whole contentment concept is something that has always been a big deal with me because of the big change it has done in me. Because I sure wasn't this way back in my 20s and early 30s. And for that matter, Jim talks about how his uh, temperament was far different in his younger years, too. I don't know how my temperament would matches with his. I would just say that, yeah, I, I was classic type A. But to be able to be content. I got on the Internet last night with a fella that, that was in my, my band out in L.A. back for 10 years, back in the 70s. And... And I haven't had a response from him yet, but this I've actually found him there. He's actually got a website. So I contacted him. And I'm curious to see what kind of reaction comes back because I, I just sent him a small message. But ultimately, if he contacts me back again and we'll get to uh, exchange emails, then I'll get around to tell him about GCA and, and tell him about God and, and what he's done for me. And I'm really anxious to find out... Tom, is that you? <laughs> is that really you? Because <laughs> I have changed, and gosh, I've changed for the better. And I've changed because of what God has done, not because of what I did, not because of my choices, not because I chose God or chose to do something different. I was just pulled in the right direction that he would have pulled me. So this is an opportunity to contact somebody that I haven't spoken to since about 19. 19- 1983. So he knows really nothing of me since those days. And I'm kind of wondering what his reaction will be. For that matter, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to see in him. (laughs) So it might be kind of fun, actually. So that's my thoughts on contentment. And I hope that God is bringing you the same contentment and peace that he has brought me. Because it's it's a nice place to be. 
Say goodnight to the internet, folks. Good night. Good night.